From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The point of today's show is to have uncomfortable conversations. About phrases like, I don't see color, and this is not who we are. People who are not discriminated against, who are not marginalized, they're the ones who have permission to say, this is not who we are. And people who are marginalized are like, yeah, uh uh-huh, yes, yes it is. Two friends, one Black, one White, have written a guidebook, How to Have Important, Brave, Life-Changing Conversations About Race and Racism. I really think that we have the capacity to be curious about other people and what their experiences are. Instead of dismissing other people as being too sensitive, woke, all of these ways in which we dismiss and demean other people's experiences. Practical tips like when and how to speak up when a loved one says something racist. In the new episode of My Story So Far. They made me feel loved and like I belonged. Pride on the Western Slope. The latest from the storytelling podcast from CPR, My Story So Far. Everywhere you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Two friends and colleagues. One black, one white. Like me and my co-host Chandra. They have written a book to jumpstart brave, life-changing conversations about race and racism. These friends who will join us share their own uncomfortable moments as friends, as well as case studies from others. The book is called Courageous Discomfort, and the authors are Shantara McBride and Rosalind Weissman. Weissman is a speaker and author who lives in Boulder. She may be best known as the author whose book inspired the movie Mean Girls. And McBride is a teacher, preacher, author, and founder of Marvelous University, whose mission is to help girls and young women succeed. Chandra and I read their racial dialogue book together, which says plainly, authentic relationships are built by going through horribly uncomfortable moments with one another. You've been warned. You've been warned. (laughs) And Rosalind Shantara, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. The book centers largely around your friendship. And I wonder if we could start with some examples of the courageous discomfort you've had together. There's so many ways in which we've had to manage uncomfortable moments and sometimes moments that have strung together into periods of time. We've both gotten super frustrated at each other. I mean, Chantara, I remember when you first moved to D.C., And I had a dog, and she was scared of dogs. Shantara, correct me if I'm wrong. I remember feeling, come on, like, it's like, don't be scared of dogs. And I was not respectful of where that fear could be coming from. I think that was one of the first moments when I realized I needed to really listen to what you were saying and sometimes what you weren't saying, like, that you weren't going to go into this whole explanation of why. I just needed to believe you. That is very true because you pulled up in this car and the dog was in the back seat. And I said simply like, I don't do dogs. And it was this fear like, oh, my gosh, she really thinks that we're about to ride somewhere with this dog in the car. Not not today. Well, this book has been described as an empowering handbook on how to have candid conversations around race and become a better advocate. And it includes a list of 20, dare I say, race FAQs, frequently asked questions that you both say you're asked the most about race. Tell us about some of those questions on the list. My favorite is, 
how racist does a family member have to be for me to say something? Oh. So it's not, are they racist? It's at what point, right, Shantara, mm-hmm. of, that, I, mm-hmm. that you say something? Yeah, that is always a go-to for me. And as well as why are Black women so sensitive about their hair? Because it is always touched without our consent. And also, why am I not invited to your party? I'm talking about the space that Black people, people of color create, not separate from or not exclusive of white people, but just a space where we can just be. And the idea that white people feel uncomfortable or feel offended even if we say, no, this space is just for us. And it's really not to exclude, but it's really to rebuild. It's really to to get more strength. And I don't think that white people or non-white people really understand how important that is. Because there's an anecdote in the book, Rosalind, where you're hanging out a lot with Shantara, uh, but there's this one event, I think it's around maybe wine. You're uh, th- correct. Th- that you <laughs> you wanted in on. and I did. And sort of still do. <laughs> uh-huh. So what did you, what did you learn as part of that? Shantara and I, when we were working together, we also had another woman that was working with us. She's Puerto Rican. And all of a sudden, Shantara was invited to this wine club with this other woman. And Mm -hmm. I loved this woman. I thought she was, she is fantastic. And there was this whole group of women that I was becoming aware of that were having wine together that were just extraordinary people. So, of course, I wanted to get to know them. So I asked Shantara, not really asking, actually, I just sort of assumed I would be invited because why wouldn't I be, <laughs> was, I want to go to your wine club. And she said, no. And I said, I don't understand what that, what do you mean? And she said, you can't come. And I'm not even going to ask. And she also knew what my follow-up question was going to be. She said, I'm not asking anybody else either. You're not coming to wine club. And then I realized that as much as I really, really wanted to get to know them, that my desire to get to know them was less important than Shantara and their collective right to just want to be in a space where they could be themselves and that if I was there, that wouldn't be the case Mm. as much. Yeah. I don't think I said it that way because I sound really um, mean. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What did you say? (laughs) I did say that you can't come, but I think part of the mental gymnastics that Black people, that, that Indigenous people, that people of color go through when we've created this space and we've said that this is designed specifically for people of color, it's the gymnastics of, okay, wait, if we say this, are we being nice? Are we being fair? Are we being inclusive? And then what's going to happen if we say, no, this person can't come or this person isn't invited? And it is a huge, it's a thing. And I wish it wasn't a thing. I wish we could just say, no, this space is for us. But I know for me, and I know other Black people feel this way, that it's the mental gymnastics of how can I say no? How can I not tell this person that they're not invited? How can I still maintain the friendship and relationship even when I need to say this space is just for us? I also wish that you know, white people would be like, oh, wait, is this just for y'all or can I invite myself? Can I... That doesn't happen. And because it doesn't happen, the mental gymnastics of how can I say no, how can I say this space is just for us, that comes into play. 
Chandra asked about the questions you raise in this book, and one of them you mentioned was, how racist does someone have to be before you say something? Where do you land on that? I mean, I, I'm, I've got to say, Chandra, I think of my late aunt. I mean, there were things that came out of her mouth, and I was in a constant state of, do I push back? Do I push back now? Do I push back the next time? Well, it seems like the fundamental principle of this book is that you have to take ownership if you really want to call yourself an ally. And it's not just about actions you take, but also the inaction that you take in that you Mm. sit silently when someone, as Ryan described, his aunt. So what does taking ownership look like to you, Shantara? Taking ownership is, it means I don't have to be around. A person of color doesn't have to be around in order for someone to speak up. Um, I think it's this idea that, oh, well, they're not in the room or a person of the community that I'm not treating with dignity is not in the room. So we're good. I don't need to say anything. I don't need to address anything. And I think one thing that I know as a Black woman, I think one of the things that's important to me is I don't have to be in the room. If you are an ally and you have all the T-shirts and buttons and the bumper stickers on your car, but then someone in your space is not treating me with dignity, then that's when you still say something. But I I really think people look around and say, well, no one from that community is here, so we're good. We could say whatever we want. But that's not being an ally, and that's definitely not being an advocate. So speaking up, even if that person is not in the room. Rosalind? When I think of this question, I think of all the reasons that people in that moment go through, as Shantara mentioned before, in a a different way, but the gymnastics in your head of how do I say something to an elder Hmm. that has said something or continues to say something or I'm apprehensive about them saying things that I fundamentally disagree with. And you get into these moments because we've all been raised to respect our elders to not say anything. It's one of those truisms across many, many cultures that you don't say anything when your elders do something that you don't agree with. You're quiet. And, and I, I think to some extent, like my struggle with my aunt was, that's how she is. She's always been this way. How yeah. am I going to change that? Absolutely. And you're not going to change her. But what you are going to do is you're going to stay present. And this is what Shantara and I are talking about in Courageous Discomfort, is that you are going to conduct yourself. And this is what it, and what we mean by taking ownership is we're going to take ownership of ourselves in that moment. And we're not ha- going to have this expectation of changing the other person. But we are going to treat ourselves and others with this fundamental concept of dignity, of worth, and that everybody's worth is essential and it is not negotiable. And so when someone in a room or you're in a relationship with says something or acts in a way that takes away the dignity of a group of people or an individual person, whether or not they're there, that that is what you will speak to. But the way in which you do it is that you treat your aunt, for example, Mm -hmm. with dignity, with this sense of no matter what, there's this baseline of worth that I'm going to recognize in this other person. And that is that is a complex, not easy thing to do, because if that person is taking away the dignity of someone else, then it is an understandable feeling to say, I don't want to do that. But the word respect actually is the thing that Shantara and I are talking about that stops us 
from being able to speak out and affirm people's dignity because we are so conditioned to be silent out of respect for people that have more authority or position than we do that we are silent. And what we are saying in this book is we can have respect for the position of parent or aunt or grandparent, police officer, teacher, person in your community of faith, the position we can have respect for. But if there is a person within that position who is taking away the dignity of other people, we don't have to respect that, those person's actions. And that separates the person and their essential dignity from their actions, which we don't have to respect if they are taking away the dignity of other people. And the reality is, is that people in positions of authority and respect use their positions to get away with taking away the dignity of other people. And that's what our book is really about, is about being present to these dynamics and being able to take ownership of them in a way that affirms everyone's dignity in the room. Well, to your point, Rosalind, um, what I find helpful is that it's almost like talking about prevention, because uh, I actually had an experience years ago as working a part-time job, and one of my coworkers, she, I wouldn't say she had any authority over me per se, but, you know, we were coworkers, and she just made a very sweeping statement about the Latinx community. And I just remembered, well, I, I don't know, maybe I've been fortunate that I've avoided a lot of the overt comments, um, but I just was literally stunned and I froze and I would have never thought knowing, you know, my personality, I'm very outspoken. I froze and didn't say anything, mainly because I was caught off guard. So I think with the book, I think it's good because it's kind of saying this is going to happen and you need to be prepared for something to say or some way that you're going to approach this instead of being stunned or or choosing to be silent because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And I really would say for white people you cannot be stunned. I mean, I guess you can be, but that's not living in reality. That is just not living in reality. Like as a parent, and I've done all this work with parents and people are, you know, they're stunned, right? Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that X happened. But especially if you're in a position of privilege, you just have to know in general that, for example, you are going to have experiences dealing with racism. You are going to have feelings and experiences of bias in your own your own self. Your children will have experiences where other kids will say things that are racist. Your child very likely will say something that is racist. That is the reality we live in. And so to take ownership of, a, of it does not mean the world is going to fall apart. It means that we're actually going to take ownership so we're more capable, stronger, to be able to handle things. Yeah. And I will say this. It's one thing to be stunned and one thing to be stunned and still say something. I mm. think it, it, the surprise and the shock is like, wait, did you just say? Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, and, and taking a moment. And it's also, especially if you have a relationship with a person, it's also okay to say something to them the next day or later on in the evening or, you know, a week. And, and it's still treating them with dignity. And I think one of the things that I've learned, not only writing this book, but just living this life, I too have family members, something that, that I'm shocked by, even though at this point in age and stage of life, I shouldn't be, but I'm still like, what? And even if I don't say anything at that moment, I can say, oh, you know, the next day or the following week, you know what, when you said whatever you said, that really was not treating that community or that person with dignity. Mm. And I just wanted to have a conversation with you about it. It doesn't have to be in that 
in that moment. And I think a lot of people feel like if they don't say something then, but they don't have permission to say anything ever. But a lot of the times, hmm. if we are, especially if we're in relationships with people, it's okay to address it the next day or the following week, even if they get convenient amnesia. And you know, you know, when they don't know what you're talking about and they're like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. It's okay. You may not remember, but I do. And so I just wanted to address this with, and I think that's okay. After acts of racial violence, like the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota in 2020, we often hear the phrase, this isn't who we are, from law enforcement or politicians. You, you might hear that from friends and family. Let's talk about the phrase, this isn't who we are. This is who we are. We, this is who we are. We are messy. And people like to take ownership when we do things that we're proud of, like our kids get awards and we can humble brag on social media about it. Colleges are getting into, graduations. That is who we are. It is also who we are that we are messy and that racism and violence based on racism and discrimination happen and degradation happens. Our kids, we give our sixth grade child a cell phone. First thing that happens is top 10 funny, quote unquote, jokes come across that child's cell phone. And some of them are going to be racist. This is who we are. The more we absolutely commit ourselves to not accepting that we are messy people that includes racism and discrimination, the more likely we are to have it infiltrate our communities and then be completely unprepared and and not capable of handling it in ways that not only can we be proud of, but that our children desperately need us to be. But Shantara, it seems to me that we're in a moment where there are at least some in the population who don't want to hear that about themselves or their own community or their history. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, especially because I'm in Texas, I'm in Dallas, and not that far from where a mass shooting took place in Allen. And I think about who has the permission and the right to say this is not who we are. Oftentimes, it's not people who look like me. And it's not people who are marginalized. And it's not people who are disproportionately discriminated against. And when I look at it and I look at the people who are saying it, and I keep thinking, yes, it is. This is who we are. Because we don't want to, one, address the foundation. And I say this all the time about the foundation of America. And anytime you are not willing to address the foundation of where we come from, of of how this country even came to be. And we want to ignore what is happening to our children. We want to ignore what is happening to people who are marginalized. Anytime that is willing to be ignored, when we continue to have mass shootings or, oh God, uh, George Floyd, and, and anytime that continues to happen in our society and we don't address it, this is who we are. And so people who are not discriminated against, who are not marginalized, they're the ones who have permission to say, this is not who we are. And people who are marginalized are like, yeah, uh uh-huh, yes, Mm. yes, it is, because we refuse to address the foundation of who we are. Shantara, another loaded phrase you cover is, I don't see color. Um, And this, this is something you heard from a high school teacher of yours. And when your mother learned that your teacher had said it, she had a really strong reaction, I think, that even surprised you then as a kid. Tell us about this. 
Yeah, one of my favorite teachers um, when I was in high school said to me, you know, Shantara, when I see you, I don't see color. And as, a, you know, a 14 or 15 year old student in a majority white school, and I was in choir and I just really love singing. And so my teacher saying this to me basically made me feel like, oh, I belong or I'm here, my voice is not horrible, it's blending in with the others, right? And so when I went home, and I was all excited, because what I heard was, you belong. Hmm. What my mother pointed out was, wait a minute, that is not something I want to hear said to you, especially from a teacher who doesn't look like you. Because being in Texas, we went to a lot of competitions in state. And my mother pointed out, like, when you get off the bus in some communities, they will not be excited to see you because they definitely see color. And this teacher saying this to you means that she is not looking out for your safety. And I was just like, what? What? (laughs) Well, well, you know, and it just, it just shifted because my mom was very clear on there are some communities that you will go to as on a competition and they will not, everyone will not be excited to see you in your black skin get off that bus. They definitely see color. Mm. And there is a way that I was taught that it's good to see me and it's good for me to feel like I belong. Both can happen at the same time. And I think we were so taught in our culture for the longest time to be colorblind. That's the way you prove that you're not racist. And the thing is, especially when white people say it, it means you actually do see me. You see my color, you see my race, but we're going to put it to the side because I want you to feel like you're safe with me. And taking away my color and my identity doesn't make me feel safe. That part of the book made me think about the famed race expert, Jane Elliott, who did the blue eyes, brown eyes exercise. One of the highlights of my career was having the opportunity in 2016 to interview her. The reason it was important to me is because when I was a preteen, I saw her on the Oprah Winfrey show and she talked about this very aspect of, I don't see color, but the way she framed it was that you're acting like you're overlooking something bad about me and almost implying that your skin color was somehow uh, negative and I'm not looking at that. And she's basically saying it's just a description. It's no different than someone saying you have on a blue shirt. You wouldn't feel like, oh, it's insulting to describe this to shirt see as the blue. blue shirt. <laughs> yeah. And so when she put it that way, I was like, yeah, then why shouldn't we? Because if we were, say, looking for someone we wouldn't be like, oh, have you seen this human? Like you'd say, did you see this woman or man or the lady in the red shirt? Or you, you would basically have no problem with describing them. And so why are you implying that seeing color is somehow an insult when it's just a description of who you are? There's a cycle that happens where well-meaning white people who really believe they are not racist have been taught through culture and just absorbing cultural messages that they can't talk about someone's race when they are identifying somebody. So you're at a store, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. And someone says, who helped you today? Right. And I've been in that position of not wanting to say (laughs) the The Asian American (laughs) person or the black. Exactly. Yes. Oh, they they had yellow glasses. Right. Exactly. (laughs) You get into this weird thing and your body starts to contort and your face gets all weird and your tone gets all weird. 
And by the way, people of color know exactly, in my experience, what you're doing. When white people do that, they're like, yeah, I know what you're th- – this is happening right now. This moment where a white person can't say something incredibly obvious, which is to identify somebody as part of as their race. So you've got this cultural message that you therefore then communicate really strangely um, about somebody. And you refuse to actually acknowledge one of the primary identifiers of who they are. And what happens when that happens is you are then signaling, especially to your children when you're doing things like this, that what you're not saying, that silence, that whatever it is that you're not saying, that is bad, that you can't speak about it. And so you are inadvertently, even if you don't want to, you're taking the messages that this is why it's so important to be aware of how we are absorbing cultural messages, that it informs the way that we communicate with other people. And then that contributes to the system overall recognizing or identifying that somehow people of darker skin color are less valuable, less worthy, are something that we can't talk about. And so it's the system that we're in that we often are not aware of. And what Shantara and I are asking people to do, and that we actually have confidence in people to do, because we go around the country and talk to people in all different kinds of places, conservative, liberal, everything in between, is that we actually believe that people have the capacity to learn and to be better and to be able to have the faith in themselves and to say, I can be uncomfortable. It's okay. It's okay for me to make a mistake. I'm not going to die. I can handle it. And we really believe that people can handle it. Okay. But contrast, it's okay for me to make a mistake with, I'm terrified of a microaggression. Of, of you doing one. Of my doing one. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, or as maybe a gay Jew, being the subject of one. Mm. <laughs> um, and in fact, you know what? I, I realized that I just did something that you have a chapter about or a, a, a lesson about, which is that I just tried to compare something and I don't oh. think I should have done that. Oh, huh. So you have a line in the book. Shantara, it's like he's oh. read the book closer than us. <laughs> um, Validate your relationship. Yes. Oh! Validate, don't relate. Exactly. Shantara, tell me. So it's funny. In raising a question about a microaggression, I've done something that you caution, especially white folks, I'm sure white men, not to do. Tell us about validate, don't relate. It's so great that you did that. It's so good because it it gives a real life, you know, example. And I think a lot of us, because we want to let the other person know that we understand or that we hear them or that we're in it with them. We bring up our own past hurt or we bring up our own current hurt and it takes away from what we just heard or what the person shared with us. And and I mm. talk about this in the book. And we'll talk about it more into this next half hour as Colorado Matters continues. We're learning how to have, quote, important, brave, life-changing conversations about race and racism. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Black Pearl. Sheila. Kermit. The Corn. Just some of the names belonging to beloved cars donated to Colorado Public Radio. And some of the reasons people gave for donating their friend. I couldn't think of a better cause for the last bits of her life. I'm sad to see him go, but glad to know he'll be of good use. It's easier to let go of your car when you donate it to Colorado Public Radio. Learn how at CPR.org.
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Talking about race and racism is important, but it can be scary. If only there was a guidebook. Well, we found one. Rosalind Wiseman of Boulder and Shantara McBride, who lives in Texas, have written Courageous Discomfort. Before the break, we learned the concept validate, don't relate. And McBride has a story to illustrate it. You know, I had a boss who was very, I wanted to say he heard me. And one of the ways he heard me was at this meeting in D.C. And it was a you know meeting of foundations and they give out the money. And when it comes to philanthropy and I looked around and realized that I was the only black person in the room. And so I think in my youth, I said to my boss when we got in the car, like, oh, wow, I was the only black person. That was that was interesting or that was weird. I don't think I use the word weird, but I'm pretty sure I use the word interesting. And he says, I understand. I know how you feel. And I looked over at him because I know he white because I'm looking at him (laughs) and I know he a man because, again, I'm looking at him. And I know he's gay because of what he shared in the office. But I was like, what? And he said, I understand how you feel. You know, as a white, you know, gay man, as a gay man, I understand, you know, being in a, in a room and feeling uncomfortable. And I was like, did he just say that he knows how? Mm. So I remember <laughs> going back to the office and Ross was the, the founder of this organization. And I remember saying to her, like, we need to talk because this was my experience in the car. And as a Black person, it shut me down. And I felt like, you know, as much as my boss was trying to understand, hearing him say, I understand how you feel because as a gay man, and I was I was just thrown, I was thrown off because I didn't understand how he could understand how I feel because no one knew he was gay until unless he discloses that information. And so it was one of those situations where I didn't know him relating was annoying. And I think a lot of us do that in our relationships and our conversations with people will say, oh, I understand because this happened to me. And then what happens is we take over their conversation Ah, and they don't even (laughs) they don't even get to share. So, yeah, validate. Don't relate. Validate. Don't relate. So what would have been a more comforting thing for you to hear? If he would have said, oh, my gosh, that space must have been so difficult for you. I hear what you're saying. And not the same, but even as a gay person, I've been in spaces where I know that even though you can't see it, I'm aware of my discomfort because I'm not sure how I'm going to be received. So I can't understand what you're going through as a black person. But in my own, you know, experience in life, this is how I feel. Do you want to say more about what you're going through? Or what do you want to say more about what that felt like? Yes, creating this space for them to share more if they would like to. If they would like to. Yeah, as opposed to kind of jutting in with your own story and sucking the oxygen out of the room. Back to the issue of microaggressions. I love how you all described it. You said they're like paper cuts. You may not see them, but they hurt. And I think that's an important message. But also, I thought it was very important that you noted most were well-intentioned statements. Like, you think you're giving a compliment. Oh, he's so articulate. So can you talk a little bit about the whole intention behind microaggressions? And it seemed to me that you were saying that that's a nice point, but it's still a very painful thing to do. And it's also something you you do need to be more conscious and aware 
of the words that are coming out of your mouth and why you're saying certain things? Well, microaggressions are complex, but what is not complex is our public reaction, which is really unfortunate, which is, oh, I can't say anything, you know, if you're white, I can't say anything because I'm going to make a mistake. And so I'm just going to shut down or I'm just going to not, I'm not going to ask any questions. I can't Mm -hmm. do anything. And so you just shut down, which frankly is really, it's understandable, I guess, to have that feeling. But at the same time, people really use that as an excuse to continue hurtful behavior and to continue not living an examined life and to be able to say, you know what, I'm just not going to do this little tiny bit of work, which is not that much work to have better understanding of the way other people are living in the world. So I really think that we have the capacity to be curious about other people and what their experiences are instead of dismissing other people as being too sensitive, woke, all of these ways in which we dismiss and demean other people's experiences. And then the other part about microaggressions is that, yes, they're like paper cuts, so oftentimes you can't see them. But what we've gotten is to this place is dismissing them out of hand and not thinking they're important because they seem small. And not only is it like a paper cut, but it's this feeling of the constant, like, quote unquote, smallness of this builds up. And I think everybody can relate to being in a situation where somebody is saying something to you that's making you feel small or is trying to make you feel small. And it's building and building and you feel like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with this for various reasons. I just I'm not dealing with it. It's not a battle I don't want to pick today. It's not that big a deal. If I say something, I'm going to be, someone's going to make fun of me even more. They're going to think that I'm being ridiculous. So I'm just going to be quiet. And then it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. And then at some point, some seemingly small little thing, which is not small, and you've been carrying this thing around with you, makes you so incredibly angry. And you are angry because of everything that's happened before it. And you're angry because of this indignity that's happened to you right here. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up anger because the book makes a point to call out ways in which we deny people of color, especially, their righteous anger. And Shantara, I wonder if you'd reflect on that because it stood out to me as a white guy. Yeah, I think that, um, and again, I I think it's because it's so fresh um, because of where I live, but who gets to be angry? And who does not? And how, as a Black person, as a person of color, you know, living in America, how do I get to express my anger and how it's received? And I think when I see white people getting to, you know, storm out of congressional meetings or who get to call for the manager on in a restaurant and how that's received and how women, especially, you know, white women get to cry and how at the same time I have to be composed. I have to be polite in my anger. I have to um, be audible, but also be respectful to the people that are hearing me. Because if I am too emotional, if I am too erratic, if I really am expressing anger in a way that is not respectful, and I use that on purpose, not dignity. This is about respect. If it's not respectable, then it is not received. And I think that when we really look at who gets to be angry, it's just like who gets to say that, you know, this is not who we are. When we really pay attention to who gets to be angry in our society and how that's received and what's done about it, 
if it's taken seriously, then we'll start to have real conversations. But I think that we love to manage people of color. We love, we as a society love to manage the behavior of what anger can look like. Yeah, and I think of those videos that have gone viral of, I, th- I think in this case, it was a white woman in Walmart who was angry and like tipped over a huge display. Um, I have to think how differently that might have gone if that were a person of color doing it. That didn't even cross, and maybe it should, um, when I'm in Walmart, Martin, or, or Target. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe I should think I'm going to tip this entire display of politicians <laughs> over, right? Like, But no, I don't want to go to jail. And I don't want to die in Walmart. You know, and so this idea of how do I get to express my anger, even when it's justified, even when it's deliberate, even when it's on purpose, how, how, what permission do I have to express my anger that it is heard, that it is believed, that it is received, and that something will happen is very different than the majority of our society. I really want people to understand who are not living the way that Shantara is describing, that you can hear this and say, I disagree. Like, I vehemently disagree. And I'm asking people who can't relate to Shantara's experience to just hear that every time she's in a situation where she is angry, she's thinking about what are the consequences of how she expresses it. And that is a moment-to-moment living experience for her that I don't have. And, you know, as a Jewish person, I don't have that. I don't walk around like that. And this is not like an Olympics of who's suffering more and who's got more this and who's more that. That does not help anybody. Do I hear you validating and not relating? (laughs) I think you might be right. Uh Um, I, I really do want people to understand that there's just, and in the process, and I've been doing this work for two and a half decades as Shantara is. And I still, by going through this work with Shantara, in some ways, the biggest gift for me was to really come into even more presence about the worlds that we are living in. We are living in alignment and parallel, but I do not live that world. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take away from you as a person. It doesn't, just because we have different experiences in our lives doesn't mean that you are less or I'm less. It doesn't. And I think we're so competing for something. No one gets a prize at the end of the day. Now, if we look at economy, if we look at who gets paid more, if we look at who's treated that, and if we consider that a prize, then, then yeah, we need to do some more work. But when it comes to treating each other as human beings, me saying that me expressing my anger I'm treated differently than how Rosalind is treated. That's facts. I I have to, I was reminded, I think it was last week, I was talking to a black woman who works at a law firm and they were talking about something that she believes in at, at work and it was around a big table. And she said to me, she has never been backed up around the table by any white person when she has said, hey, can we pay attention to X? That, her experience is not ever being backed up. And if she could just get a little bit of backup, it wouldn't feel so exhausting all the time that she was alone. And again, I want us to feel that feeling of, even if we have not had that experience, 
can we just credit that that experience is real? It is real. And if we could just have that moment, for example, sitting around a table at work and a minority, a disenfranchised person speaks out and then there's this quiet, right, of and the person in position of power says, you know, we don't have any time to deal with that right now. We're just going to keep going. We've got an agenda to go to, whatever. And in that moment, an advocate can say, without getting into some long ex- explanation or showing a documentary, it's, hey, actually, I think that what that person is talking about is really important. So can we just get a date and a time on the calendar to make sure that we go back to that? Mm. That'd be really great. I'd really appreciate it. There's no diatribe about race and racism in that moment. It is just backing that person up and they feel seen, they feel heard, and they're in the room and they don't have to do all the work. Shantira, you're a runner. And after the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, which is a black man who was gunned down while jogging through a predominantly white neighborhood in Georgia, you heard from a white woman, a friend. What did she say? Which time? Which no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to say this was the time when, and I'm a preacher, I work with a lot of churches, and, and I think this is one of those incidents where I heard, how's your soul? Because I guess my soul would be in jeopardy if, if, I'm, if I'm angry. And so I, I was just like, oh, no, my soul is anchored. I'm good. But I'm pissed off about what continues to happen, you know, in our communities. This person also, you know, was like, should I, can I send your family flowers? Can I buy you dinner? And I was like, what? And part of me wanted to say yes, because who doesn't love <laughs> Texas Rose House rolls? But I knew that, that wasn't going to <laughs> absolve the guilt or absolve the feelings that this person was going through. And so, I, you know, I, of course, said no. You'll be glad to know. I did say no. I didn't, even though I love flowers, I didn't, you know, ask her to send me some. But it was an opportunity to see the difference in what people who didn't look like me, what they were thinking about when they see violence, when they see murder happen in our society, especially from someone who looks like me, but the violence is perpetrated by someone who is white or someone who looks like them. And so I also felt like, can I continue to jog? What are some oh God, safety areas that I put around. How do I tell, you know, my parents? How do I text, you know, my loved ones? This is where I'm going. This is all of that because jogging um, was no longer a safe space for me because of what happened to Ahmaud Arbery. And I guess that notion of white people making like individual apologies when something like that happens to their friends or colleagues of color there's no real action in that. No, no. And I think one of the things that we talk about, would it help to say I'm sorry? And an apology is is nice, but action behind that is so much better. And action as far as writing, and I know people think that writing your Congress people doesn't make a difference. It really does. Speaking out against racism is really helpful. And you do that in your way that you know affects your community. That's why when I when people feel like, well, I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to be offensive to people who look like you. But sliding in my DM saying, I'm sorry, me saying, okay, that doesn't absolve the feelings or and it doesn't change our environment. And so, yeah, action is way better. And sending me flowers or buying, you know, dinner is not the action that is needed. 
what is needed is to do these seemingly small acts like around the table, you know, at work or when you're with somebody who's a relative, that person that you that you've respected, that you've not said anything to is, you know, what if you're in that family dinner table and things are getting heated or they're pushing at you and saying things that are making you anxious and you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't want I don't want to do, you know, or especially if you're the person in your family that is like the designated person to argue about these kinds of things. And look, having 27 facts about things don't matter. People don't listen. What we can do in these moments around the dinner table, for example, is to say, hey, this is a really important topic that you're bringing up or that joke that you just made is really important to me. You're not saying good or bad. You're saying the joke you just made is a really important thing. That's a really important thing you just said. I don't want to talk to you about it now, but I do want to talk to you about it later. Can we do that? And they might blow you off or say something silly or disrespectful, demeaning. And you, you're, the, the response of, look, you know, the way we treat each other, regardless of what the topic is, is really important to me. So I'd really like to talk to you later. When's a good time? Just let me know. And the last thing just to say is if they come back at you or they're putting you down or putting down what you're saying, you can say to them, the way you're responding to me, the way you're talking to me, seems like you're really not interested in what I have to say or you're not curious about what I'm saying. Is that true? Is that accurate? Just ask them. And if they say, yeah, I'm not interested in what you have to say, then, hey, walk away and like try another day. Like Shantara said, these are conversations we can have another time. But to say it, to actually say, are you interested in hearing what I have to say right now? Or are you curious about what I'm saying? Because the way you're asking me these questions does not come across as if you're curious that you want to know what I have to say. So if you're not, we can do this another time. If you are, let's try. Because I want to do this with you so that you are in conversation. It's not a four-hour conversation. You're not trying to beat them down with facts. And you are standing your ground at the same time, which not only stands your ground with yourself and your relationship with that person, but it also gives gravitas and dignity to the topic of what you are talking about, which is, for example, in this case, racism and treating people with dignity based on who they are, no matter who they are. So that does that can be anything, right, with how mm -hmm. someone identifies. That is important to me. That's what we're talking yeah. about. And the only thing I will add, I understand why people apologize. Like, I understand the intent behind coming into someone's DMs and saying, I'm sorry. I, I, I get it. And especially because people, you know, who follow me on social media, they know that I like to go outside and they know I like to run. And, and so I understand this is someone that I know, or at least I think I know because I've, I've seen them or I've heard them. And, and so we're friends. So I understand. But I also want you to hear that saying I'm sorry is cool. But if that's where it ends, it's not really anything else that needs to be done. At least that's what I feel like. Saying I'm sorry and hearing, you know, can I buy your family dinner? Should I send you flowers? If that's all that's going to happen, then that's not enough. But I understand wanting to say I'm sorry or or this idea of a few weeks ago, someone in my DM said, I'm so sorry this violence keeps happening. And my response was, yeah, me too. What are we going to do? Shantara, Rosalind, thanks yeah. for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Rosalind Wiseman is a speaker and best-selling author who lives in Boulder. 
best known for writing the book that inspired Mean Girls. And Shantara McBride is a Texas-based author, preacher, speaker, and teacher. Their book together is Courageous Discomfort, How to Have Important, Brave, Life-Changing Conversations About Race and Racism. Ryan, thanks for reading it with me. Oh, Chandra, it was a joy. And that is Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.